Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me on today's Sunday podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Uh, I doubt people will be hearing this on Sunday, though. So it is a Sunday recording day. Yeah, they won't They won't be hearing it on Sunday, uh, depending on how much time I have to edit. Hopefully they'll be hearing it early in the week. But I mentioned Sunday uh, because, Luke, you and I are going to start getting together to do a little bit of extra Peach Pod on Sunday afternoons. And we're going to approach the Sunday show recordings a little bit differently than the ones you hear with the full panel during the regular a recording we put out each week on, you know, usually on Thursdays or Fridays, again, depending on my editing time. Um, and in these Sunday shows, we are going to take a little bit of a different approach by looking more at sort of the mechanics of how campaigns are run and giving you our analysis on whether or not campaigns, when they put out ads, when they put out new messages, when they roll out policy proposals or any of the other kind of nuts and bolts of campaigning give you our analysis on whether or not the choices that campaigns are making are effective, whether or not when they put out, for instance, a new advertisement, what message is it sending? Is it the right message to send? Do we think that those decisions are effective? Um, Give you a little bit more of an insight into the way in which campaigns are run and the way in which these races are ultimately won. Luke, we are doing this, I think, largely because you have a lot of campaign experience. Um, do you want to say anything else about, you know, the kinds of analysis you'd like to bring to these Sunday recordings? Yeah. So really this is, I think a opportunity for us to do a real value add because the, the show that we traditionally do the deep dives into policy and, uh, what's going on is great. And I, I think it's still a valuable service in this wacko time we live in and shouldn't go away. But the one thing when we were talking about doing this, that I, I kept thinking about is we haven't been able to cover the campaigns and what the actual campaign is doing outside of, uh, you know, the policy prescriptions that they were talking about. And I, I think that's an important conversation to have just because this has been a year, at least on the presidential level, it's really felt like nothing has mattered. That like, you know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump's poll numbers have not moved whatsoever. And that's just not really the case uh, for a lot of other races where there's actually been significant movement. And there are lots of things that uh, candidates are doing on the senatorial level and uh, here locally in you know Georgia in our state house and state senate races that people are doing that I found interesting and thought uh, that was worth discussion to see you know, what's working and what's not, uh, both in, you know, just normal, interesting campaign ways, but also in seeing people adapt to uh, the, you know, multiple and ever-increasing crises we find ourselves in in 2020. So uh, I'm hoping that we can get away from the, like, how the race is going, horse race only aspect of just, like, who's up and who's down, but also, you know, addressing, like, what people are trying to do and whether we think uh, that's going to be effective or what is the source behind uh, people's strength. So I think it's going to be fun and, you know, hopefully everyone else will too. Yeah. And in some ways it returns a little bit to the roots of peach pod. Uh, You know, one of the things we um, reminisce on fondly is, is those early days when it was just you and I, and we were just kind of shooting the shit about politics. I think we're going to get a little bit back into that. Although of course it is 2020 it is also a never-ending stream of bad news and best-laid plans aside. Um, we are the actually shit shooters on overdrive. <laughs> yeah, 
And so instead of starting off with some of this campaign mechanics talk, uh, we're going to start off by reacting to some relatively breaking news that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died at the age of 87. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg served on the Supreme Court since she was nominated by President Clinton in 1993. And prior to becoming a Supreme Court justice, she was a fantastic lawyer who, um, from the other side of the court in, in much of the 1970s wrote many of the most important briefs that changed the way in which the court interpreted federal law in a way that uh, really prevented a lot of uh, outright gender discrimination. Um, and that is one of the most important parts of her legal legacy. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about her legacy today, but for the most part, we're going to save that conversation about her legacy on gender equality, about her importance on the court, about her importance as a cultural figure. And we're going to save that for a future conversation when we can convene a larger panel. But one of the things that I'd like to talk about that um, was most immediately on the mind of uh, the political world was the political implications of her passing and of an attempt to replace her on the Supreme Court that seems to be coming really quickly. Um, but Luke, if you want to start here, um, just giving us sort of your reaction to seeing her passing and and what's on your mind about uh, what was lost um, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. Like many tragedies in 2020, it's very difficult to know even where to begin. Uh, losing RBG is a really, really heavy loss in a year that is no good for its heavy losses. At, at this point, I'm expecting the moon to start to descend and fall upon the earth like Majora's Mask um, for for all you 90s kids out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, just it, it is really... Really hard, and I hate the fact that we are, you know, due to scheduling reasons, not able to talk about uh, her legacy in detail today, and that that's having to wait just because RBG is someone who is truly a pillar of, you know, legal communities and uh, really is someone who uh, has helped uh, develop my view of the law and like what the law should be, and uh, was someone who I think this is true for a lot of people in, in, politics but and to be fair like both on the left and the right that you have a lot of ideas and feelings and you know you have uh, conceptions of what justice should be but they're very hard to articulate sometimes like they're you know the principles are difficult to develop in a consistent way in a like defendable way in a way that makes sense and one thing that i will definitely go into more later that i i, I think we've really really lost is that uh, one of ruth bayer ginsburg's great talents was her ability to take these abstract principles and put them on paper and word them and structure them into arguments in a way that was both intellectually very honest and uh you know morally honest and it's just it's a real loss because there are so many people who uh you know make it to the supreme court and don't really or into even you know the highest level of our politics whether it's a majority leaguer or a president that don't really care about such things and don't hold themselves to any level of integrity but rbg definitely did and and was someone i respected a lot for her ability to uh, have integrity while maintaining her principles and uh, you know sh making arguments that will definitely uphold the the test of time. 
And we, like I said, we can go into that more later, but I, I just, that's a, that's a personal loss that I'm feeling of a voice who helped me think about and articulate uh, what I believed. And so I'm sure a lot of other people are feeling that too. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to be transparent with our listeners, one reason we do want to wait to talk about her legal legacy, the legacy of her career and the legacy of her as a cultural icon is to bring together a, a wider and more diverse panel and and not just have it be you and I. Um, but I think the news of her passing on Friday night really did sort of seem to make the world stop for a moment. And so I did spend, you know, Saturday and, and part of today on Sunday reading about her career, reading about um, all of the most important legal decisions that she was involved in, both when she was a justice and, and before that. And one of the the quotes of hers that kind of stuck with me reading about her life was she said something to the effect of lead in a way that will encourage others to follow you. And in in some ways, her approach to fighting for gender equality and, and fighting for equality across a lot of different areas um, was one of incrementalism and one of not moving too quickly so as to not invite a backlash. And as we move this conversation to how the political world will react to her passing and an attempt to fill her seat with a successor, um, it's interesting that there are already really aggressive calls about what Democrats and Republicans do in this instance that may itself invite a backlash, um, because it does seem like on the most partisan, most divisive issues that we face as a country, um, any notion of incrementalism, any notion of leading in a way in which it would encourage others to follow you seems to be a little bit falling out of style. So I think to start with with the political implications here, um, it's appropriate to look back at uh, the death of Justice Antonin Scalia in the lead up to the 2016 election. He died, I believe, in it was either January or February of 2016. And President Obama, listeners probably remember, nominated Merrick Garland uh, to be Justice Scalia's successor. And that nomination was not really given the time of day in the Senate. And at the time, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell set this quote-unquote standard that nominees for the Supreme Court should not get votes in election years, and that the outcome of a presidential election should, you know, weigh heavily and, and give oppor- an opportunity for voters to voice their opinion and who a next justice should be. Surprise, surprise, that standard doesn't seem to uh, have lasted very long um, now that Uh, Republicans control the Senate and the White House and have an opportunity to push this nomination through uh, without Democrats having a lot of formal power to stop it. Um, It appears that they are going to move quickly. President Trump said he would nominate and he would likely nominate a woman within the next week or so. And Mitch McConnell said that that nominee would get a vote on the floor of the Senate. Luke, I'm interested in this debate around this standard that at least I've interpreted is happening. Chuck Schumer almost immediately called back to McConnell's words in 2016. Um, Some leading liberal activists have said that any nomination to replace uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court at this hour would be fundamentally illegitimate. 
Democrats were not making that case in 2016. They were fuming at the idea that McConnell would prevent uh, President Obama from having his nominee at least get a vote. Or, you know, that's separate from the question of even winning that vote, but just getting one at all. Do you think that it's wise for Democrats to be bringing up this supposed McConnell standard from 2016 and, and sort of expecting him to live by it? <laughs> Kyle, I, one of my favorite things about you is you ask really great questions with the one exception, the one caveat that so many of your questions are so good, and then you add like an addendum <laughs> on the end of them that make me hate them. Because <laughs> I agree with everything you said until you said the words and expect McConnell to uh, like to uphold it, right? Because, so so let's hit that first part of your question. If someone says... I think this is a rule of politics and I'm going to follow it because of principles, because of reasons, because X, Y, and Z. And then they later do something that is not in line with that, even if it's a less blatant situation than this one, a more debatable situation than this one. I think you should bring that up because I think, you know, people's perception of politics is so negative as is and everyone you know is constantly like oh they're all liars and crooks and none of it matters anyway to the extent that you can hold people accountable for what they say and do in office i think that is important now to do it does that mean you think they're actually going to follow through or not that's a different discussion um for democrats i think it is incredibly appropriate for them to bring it up because and i think this is a mistake that it's easy for us to make and a lot of people in the media make this is going to come a shock to some people, but the Senate actually has more people in it and more Republicans than Mitch McConnell. He is actually one of a hundred senators that happen to be in the Senate. He just so happens to also be the leader of the Republican Party, which are not in complete control of the Senate, but only have a majority of it. And I, I know I'm, I'm being a little facetious there by saying it and framing it that way, but like Mitch McConnell is one person, and there are many, many other people in the Republican Party who set this standard and, you know, ripped and tore their shirts and, you know, cut their cut themselves in the Senate floor saying the importance of letting the voters speak and let their intent be held, you know, and that is the most important thing and they would die for the country. <laughs> and I, I know I'm this is sounds hyperbolic, but like go back and listen to some of these people. And that's basically what they were saying and the level of, you know, emotion that they were going with. Um about how important it was for the voters to have a voice. And they, with with very, very few exceptions thus far, to my knowledge, as we speak on Sunday, only Lisa Murkowski and uh, Senator uh, Susan Collins have uh, made vibrations that they don't feel that way um, and that they actually are going to stick to the previous standard. I, like, I really, really think that like that hypocrisy is important to point out and to, to talk about and to hold them accountable for because the the strategy of people like Mitch McConnell and this is why again I hated the the last part of your question because it is a completely different discussion Mitch McConnell wants you to just throw up your hands and say I give up because that's how he wins is <laughs> like he wins by just exhausting you by being Mitch McConnell yeah well and I guess let me drill in on my question a little more then because I think there's sort of I think there's two pieces of it. I, I take your point that like, yeah, you should point out where they're being hypocritical. And I guess I'm so cynical that 
you know, I, I knew Mitch McConnell was full of shit when he said what he said in 2016. And I wish I could have been in the room when somebody on Mitch McConnell's staff walks into his office and tells him that Ginsburg has died. And they say, so are you going to uphold that standard you said in 2016? And they all bust out laughing because they all knew that it was never a standard. It was never a real thing. It was just a politically convenient excuse. Um, but at the same time, I, I think I'm also asking a bit of a strategic question in that there are sort of multiple things at stake here. There is this supposed standard that Democrats are at least attempting to call out McConnell's hypocrisy on, um, that a standard that Democrats may or may not believe in. And then there's this fight over, so what does it actually mean substantively if McConnell is successful in pushing through a Supreme Court nominee that replaces Ruth Bader Ginsburg with somebody like Amy Coney Barrett, who is going to be a much more conservative justice and who is going to rule on is and is going to have rulings that are going to infuriate Democrats. And so it was interesting to me to see the Biden campaign signal that their focus isn't necessarily going to be on this standard. I think Biden has called for the nominee to wait until after the presidential election, but that the focus of the campaign's argument is going to be that a justice nominated by Trump and pushed through by Republicans in the Senate uh, is going to lead to a Supreme Court that's going to take your health care away. And that the difference between RBG and and Trump's nominee is that RBG would have never voted to take your health care away and Trump's nominee will. And so I think it's a question of messaging of like, does anyone really care about that McConnell standard on the merits? And if not, should Democrats sort of set aside the procedural argument here and make very clear the the policy and legal implications of Ruth Bader Ginsburg being replaced by a conservative justice. I don't think so, as long as Democrats stick to one or two things and keep hammering them. And and the reason I say that is like Joe Biden, despite being in the Senate for longer than I have been alive and uh, being a creature of the Senate, is making a very presidential argument, while Chuck Schumer, who is the the minority leader of the Senate, is making an argument that a senator would make, right? And to the extent that there is consistency in the arguments based off the roles they are in, I think that is a good move to make because a lot of people are saying what's going to happen here. And I'm not going to lie to anyone. I have no clue what's going to happen here. Uh, You know, it's, it's just, it's, there's so many factors in there. So unpredictable. And, and on, you know, that front, I think that is an important thing to highlight because for Democrats, like they need to push this on every single level they possibly can to prevent this from happening. And I think that is not only the like right thing to do because of the politics I have, but I also think it's the right thing to do because there just needs to be a bit of a pause, I think, um, and a reassessment of how this stuff works because there's just it's unsustainable, right? I'm not just talking about the Supreme Court. I'm talking about the confirmation process is is just very, very broken. And it's been broken really since the Republicans t- took back the Senate. And I, I, this is one place where I am not blaming 
just Mitch McConnell. Like, I think it is a failure of imagination on the part of the Senate as an institution on the way to uh, be fair here. Because this is one place where I think people may not agree with me, with the exception of this Supreme Court lifetime appointment, like in this close to an election. I generally believe that if you're the president, you should get to appoint whoever the hell you want to be in your administration, and you should get like some deference on your judges. But like, unless they're just patently unqualified, which to be fair, many of the people Trump has appointed to judges, uh, judgeships are patently unqualified. Um, but like, unless they're there, like, you should get like a little bit of deference there. And I, I really think what this is just highlighting is the desperate, like, just un questionable need for significant reform in the area of appointments both for like cabinet officials and like sub cabinet officials but also for judges because there just need there just needs to be some laws like regulating this stuff and so whether like we don't want to appoint any supreme court justices for the whole election year or if we want to just like say maybe three months before or six months before. Like, I don't really care. I just want to have that conversation to work out what these norms should be because this is just simply not tenable. Like, we can't, ju we just can't do this every four years. And it it's just, it's just not healthy because with how polarized things are going to be, like, if Mitch McConnell and the Republicans hold the Senate, like, are they just not going to confirm the Secretary of State that Biden picks? Are they just not going to confirm, like, anybody? Uh, like, that's just, it's ridiculous, and it's not, it's not something that we should want to have happen. And so, I think the larger discussion that's really being missed here is not whether, like, Mitch McConnell's rule is good or not. It's, it's more of a, like, we're not having the real conversation we should be having, which is, like, how do we deal with appointments in general? I agree with you on that frame that we're not having the conversation we really need to be having, but I think that conversation extends to the role of the court and whether or not the court is just another partisan body that is no different than a legislature and no different than executive. Well, I don't think in it terms should be. of <laughs> you know, I, I, I you, you don't know. think that the court should be different than a legislature or an executive. Yeah, that it's a political because body. the the role of a judge is to, you know, again, let's take politics out of it, what we want a judge to do. I think pretty much everyone agrees that you want a judge to be a neutral arbiter. Like, if I told you a judge is going to rule on something for you, like, and you did not know who that judge was going to be, and you got to choose between a strong partisan ideologue that maybe agrees with you or maybe doesn't agree with you, don't know, or a neutral arbiter, I think a very strong majority of people would pick neutral arbiter. Whereas if I told you your congressperson, like who you want, there would be some people that want the ideologue either way. But they, uh, you know, I, I think that would be a very, very different ratio because there's there's a good, there's there's some political benefit for politicians, even if they disagree with you, to be fierce advocates for their position where there are very few benefits for having judges that are very, very partisan. So this is where my cynicism on the politics of courts has sort of reached its maximum point, because I don't actually think that the most influential Republican politicians believe that the court is any different than a legislature or an executive. It is a it is it is a branch of government enumerated in the Constitution that should serve that should be used to promote the policy goals of Republican politicians. I I think that that's what most of them believe, and I think that that's 
you you see that run through in McConnell's supposed standard in 2016 that suddenly evaporates in 2020. You know, in my view, what is underlying all of those excuses is that they want to leverage the court to pursue their policy goals. And they don't really care about its role in interpreting the law and being a neutral arbiter or any of that kind of stuff. I think they all think that it's bullshit. And I think that when you look at the reaction that that has engendered among progressives who are now immediately calling for uh, Democrats to add seats to the court if McConnell violates his standard and gets a Republican nominee on the court, uh, you know, this year, that I just feel like the train has left the station on whether or not the court is being leveraged as a partisan weapon. I think. Well, that was your initial long... question to me, because <laughs> your initial question is what it should be. Uh, I well, agree yeah, with but... you that that is how the Republicans are treating it. And I also am, to be honest, a little frustrated the Democrats are, tre- you know, treating it in the same way, because while emotionally speaking, because like I, I want to be clear kind of where my head is at here, because I think it is relevant to my analysis. I think that right now, my, uh, if I had to put money down, the Republicans are going to get this seat just based on facts and how Mitch McConnell operates and the inability of Republicans to do anything that is moral upright or standards that would meet the things they claim to care about. And I mean, that's just something that like, if it sounds controversial and you're booing and hissing me now, listening to me, one, why are you listening to the show? Who are you? (laughs) Send me an email. Um, But also like, History will, will will hear us out that like there will not be a version of Profiles in Courage two where Mitch McConnell and you know like John Corning are the the headliners for voting against you know not letting Merrick Garland through and then letting through whoever they do this time that will be not that will be Profiles in Cowardice uh, well, if and it is I, a book but that well but and the, can I interrupt you just to illustrate yeah, your please. point and ask Democratic voters a question how many Democratic voters I know you probably live in Georgia, but if you lived in Maine or if you lived in Alaska, where both Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski have said that they would hold off on this appointment, how many of Demo- how many of you Democratic voters would go across the aisle to support Murkowski? She's not up, but to support Murkowski or Collins based on them upholding this standard. Like, well, I think that's the wrong none. question, though, because Democrats know, but not everybody in the country is a Democrat or Republican. Now, I would say, I'd say vast majority of voters, if they had to be honest, they lean one way or the other. I, I mean, the data shows that out. But, like, there's a lot of people that an- have antipathy to both parties. And Susan Collins, despite her last six years in office, like, I mean, truly, honestly, her record before that had a lot of moderate streaks to it. Not nearly as much as her reputation would make you think. But, like, it did happen. And I think the the frustration that I feel in this situation and, and part of the reason that I felt very hopeless, uh, despite one, you know, like beyond just the fact of like one of my heroes just died, but like the going forward without that person um, made me frustrated is that I just knew that it was going to reinforce a lot of the bad impulses. Because if you put a deal in front of me, which was either like Republicans get this one Supreme Court seat 
and I also get all those process reforms that I said needed to happen, or they don't get that seat and we get and we get one seat and we keep doing things the way we've been doing, I would give them that seat because the process stuff is what is really, really hurting us here and making this into such a bigger and terrible fight and making hypocrites out of so many politicians because we're just asking too much of people <laughs> because the one, you know, the founders were very, very smart when they were forming the Constitution, at least knowing like like the consequences of some of their actions. And one thing that they did talk about is they did not want to get rid of ambition out of our political system. They desperately wanted to keep it in because they thought that ambition would lead to better results and people striving to do a good job. But I think they did miss the consequences of unfiltered ambition. And so that's why I think the process stuff is so important. Um, and, you know, so for Susan Collins and for Murkowski, Alaska and Maine, are they the most competitive states? No, but like both of them have a history of winning elections because they swayed people who are swing voters who flip between elections. And sure, there's less of them than there used to be. But I think there is a value in that, in that, you know, there are voters who would take this into consideration and do take this into consideration. And I, I think that is relevant. And the other thing is, too, on the flip side, like to me, I think there are a lot of voters who don't pay attention very often. I mean, this is something I talk about a lot, but like they aren't dumb because they don't pay attention. They just have more important things going on in their lives. And so when there are people who, to use a good example, like Lindsey Graham, who like for years campaigned on the fact that he's an independent voice that nobody tells him what to do and he's a maverick light, you know, compared to his buggy John McCain, when in 2018 he's like, this is recording. This is on video. I'm saying I would not vote to support a, uh, you know, Supreme Court nominee in the last year of President Trump's first term. And now he's saying the exact opposite as someone who has the power to kill this thing dead. If he wanted to, he could prevent this from happening because he is a chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He could completely stop this from happening. He's now saying the exact opposite, despite saying I'm on tape, quote this tape to me if I don't do this. Like, that tells the voters something very, very useful, because there are some people, they do exist, Kyle, I assure you, <laughs> there are some people who would rather have someone who disagrees with them that they can trust than someone who they agree with most of the time who they can't trust. And Lindsey Graham is as loud as he possibly can be campaigning on the fact, do not trust me, I will lie to you if it's ideologically beneficial to me. Like, I think that is a valuable thing. Let's bring this down to to Georgia a little bit here and talk about the political implications um, in our state for elections in November. Uh, one of the first reactions to the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg came from Georgia GOP chair David Schaefer, who tweeted, sometimes we forget that there are moments we should simply pause and pay respect. And everyone in Georgia Republican politics followed David Schaefer's benevolent advice. The end. Okay. Credits. Roll credits. <laughs> Roll the credits. All right. So here's actually how people reacted. Kelly Leffler, to her credit, did uh, say that her prayers were with, with Ginsburg's family, paid a little bit of respect to Ginsburg, but was the first politician I saw to say that uh, she would support uh, President Trump nominating a, a justice to replace Ginsburg. She said she would support Trump in nominating a strict constructionist before the election who would protect innocent life and safeguard conservative values. Uh, that was um, downright nice compared to what Doug Collins said. He said, without acknowledging Ginsburg at all, 
He said, rest in peace to the more than 30 million innocent babies that have been murdered during the decades that Ruth Bader Ginsburg defended pro-abortion laws. With Donald Trump nominating a replacement that values human life, generations of unborn children will have a chance to live. Luke, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, wow. that's a lot. You know, I, I really, <laughs> this is one of the first times, maybe the only times I will ever say Jeez this stuff. in my life, but I really wish people had listened to David Schaefer. Um <laughs> Because, like, Lord, it's just, it's so, ex- I mean, this is, this is honestly what I think is the most exhausting part of 2020, is that it's just, like, nobody, like, nothing can be easy, you know, like, it's already hard enough that, like, we're having the Supreme Court fight, and people just cannot handle it, like, emotionally mature adults is, is very, very frustrating and exhausting, and, um, my, fr- my frustration with this lies in the fact that, like, there's a reason Doug Collins sent that tweet. One, he very well might be- believe it. And, you know, I understand people have these pro-life <laughs> views. And, but like, to me, it is unquestionable. If you are truly pro-life and you really care about people's lives, celebrating someone's death is a very strange thing to do. Um, but I'm going to put that aside for a moment and just like hit on the fact that the reason that Doug Collins tweeted this out is because he thinks this would be politically advantageous to him because he is in a very tough, re- you know, fight for a uh, Senate seat against Kelly Loeffler. And the reason why he tweeted this out and he tweeted it out in this way is because he clearly thinks this will help him in this race. And to be clear, I really think he might be right because what has been exceptionally clear to me and just like very, very shocking is just how much that this Senate jungle primary feels like a republican primary and i don't really know like why that is i don't know if it's covid i don't know if it's just the nature of the georgia electorate i like i i'm admitting some ignorance here but loffler deserves some credit because i was very very skeptical of her we can we can run the tape back earlier in the year where i thought she was dead meat and so you know kudos to her but you know in surviving and what her her strategy has been, I mean, we've talked about this to some extent, is to be incredibly controversial and say things that are blatantly wrong, racist, and, you know, just not in good character uh, for any public official to to say, and, you know, in a way that is, like, very, very dividing. And Doug Collins is just playing the game that Loeffler has been playing ever since her poll numbers started to go up with this. And so I don't know if this is going to shift to this race any, that, you know, if Collins is going to get on this more comfortable footing. But it's 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 difficult because it's not like Collins and Loeffler would vote differently. Like, Donald Trump could nominate a squirrel to be in the Supreme Court justice. They would both vote for them with, you know, unabashed uh, consistency because this is not a race between, you know, the man that they are replacing, uh, Johnny Isaacson and Doug Collins, or Johnny Isaacson and Kelly Loeffler. It is two people who, ideologically speaking, are kind of hard to distinguish at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think what you can interpret from this tweet is that it's clear that the strategy for both candidates is make the runoff and then roll the dice to win a low turnout runoff against whatever Democrat comes out on the other side. Well, well, I mean, I, I would I pause there real quickly. I don't think either of them think there's going to be another Democrat. And according to current polling, they would be correct in that assessment because, and we can talk about this more, but like 
no Democrat has been able to put this shit together. And I and I will say, like, I am surprised by that fact. I, I really think what it is is just a... I, 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 I do put some blame for COVID on this aspect of it, is that a real thing in Democratic politics and Democratic primaries, for sure, because in the same way that... To some extent, this is a Republican primary uh, between Collins and Loeffler. I, I feel like this is also true for Warnock and Lieberman and the other 2,064 uh, candidates for this Senate seat. Um, like going around the state of Georgia and going to like the Clark County Democrats or to the Oglethorpe County Democrats or to the Camden County Democrats like actually mattered and it actually helped people understand like oh this is who it is and like you under I, I mean I underestimate just how important those networks are of people and just like you know you, you you as someone who votes in a Democratic primary maybe you don't go to those events but you're friends with someone who's a friend of someone who does and this, eventually that shit will trickle down right and and so I think it's it's one of those things that because there's nothing going on that a lot of people haven't been able, uh, a lot of Democrats specifically have not been able to figure out who they want to support in this race, despite the fact that Matt Lieberman may have lived in the state of Georgia, but I am unaware of anything he's ever done for the Democratic Party of Georgia. Maybe he's given them money. Uh, I haven't checked, but like I've never seen him before this year. Uh, whereas Raphael Warnock is has been everywhere, and so in my, I would think just from natural like low information who have i heard of before uh warnock would be doing significantly better and i mean he he's he's starting to do better but he's not near anywhere close to where i I would think he would be so let's i want to put a pin in the democratic side of this for a second um but i want to acknowledge that the most recent poll did have leffler in first warnock in second and collins in third um, so I do think that there is a path there for a Democrat to make the runoff. Um, and, and we'll talk about how in a second here about how these events impact, you know, the incentives on the Democratic side of this race. I do think on the Republican side, to me, the strategy is illustrative of the fact that both Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins believe they have to win a Republican primary to make the runoff and then take their chances against a Democrat. And if the eventual outcome is that both Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler make the runoff, then this Republican primary just continues until this race is over. And they are both making the bet that the Republican electorate in this race is dominated by Trump-based Republicans. And I think it's interesting given that Doug Collins entered this race with a lot of institutional support, and he could have been a Republican a little more in the mold of Johnny Isaacson or Casey Cagle, somebody who could draw voters who are more moderate and who may be more skeptical of Trump-based Republicans. And in fact, that was the role that Kelly Loeffler was aiming to play when she was initially nominated for this seat. Um, but apparently her team believes that now she needs to go for a full Trump based strategy. And Doug Collins believes that his path to success is to do the same thing. And I think if you're a Republican, I think the reason to adopt this strategy is that I, I do believe that it is unlikely that two Republicans will make the runoff. 
I believe eventually Democrats will roughly rally around one. But, you know, I you, when you look at a roughly a state that is going to be very close to 50 50 uh, Democrats and Republicans on general election day to believe that that 50 percent Democrat will be still be so splintered that Republicans who have been duking it out this whole time will still be the top two vote getters. I, I just think that that's unlikely. And so then the bet that both Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins make is that maybe this race is meaningless by the time you get to the runoff, or maybe Democrats' historic struggles to turn out their voters in a runoff continue, and that all of the noise that they've made and the and the positions that they've taken, that notably David Perdue is not running this kind of politics, that they believe that none of that will matter because they can win a low turnout election and and ultimately win this thing. Um, and so I think that that, you know, we, Georgia is a battleground state in the presidential race. It's a battleground state in the Purdue Ossoff race. And it just doesn't feel like it. It feels like, you know, as deep red as like Oklahoma in this special election Senate race, it just makes for a really interesting and unique dynamic. It's, it's as if this race is taking place in a completely different universe. Yeah, for for them, it is definitely happening in a different universe. And I think it's just because Loeffler is testing out a lot of messages uh, and trying a lot of things and things that have been successful for her in getting her to overcome Doug Collins. Because I think it is important to just remind everyone that Doug Collins started this race out ahead of her significantly. And she was in the toilet. If any incumbent senator was in a bad shape, it was her. Um, but now she is ahead of him. And I really, really think that is interesting. And I agree with you to some extent that some aspects of the Purdue Ossoff race are, are not reflecting this. And we're going to talk about this on a different show, but I, you know, I live in Georgia and my mailbox is getting, uh, pounded with mailers. And the thing that I, I find really fascinating is that the the mail is ahead of where I think the TV ads are because I think the TV ads are going to go here. And just to, to sum them up, and again, we'll talk about this more later, but basically there's a real mail campaign that John Ossoff is a terrorist, like literally, literally a terrorist that like he collaborates with terrorist organizations. Um, and like that, that is unsurprising to me that that is the tact they're they're thinking is going to work um i don't know how people believe this but i imagine there are people who are going to believe this mailer when they see it um and you know so so this race is happening both of these races to me are happening in the same cinematic universe like there there are there are things that are consistent between the two of them um the Real, real difference, I think, is that I feel like Ossoff, maybe it's how long he's been running, maybe it's the tough race he had previously, maybe it's the amount of money, it's probably all of these things. He's running a much better campaign as far as his ability to not only respond to these attacks, but make his own attacks against Purdue compared to any Democrat I've seen running this state uh, while I've been paying attention to politics. Um, so, you know, high, high praise for me for Ossoff, but it's, uh, I really do feel that way. Um, and so I think to me, the, the big difference is not like a different universe between the Purdue Ossoff race and the jungle prime and the jungle race. It, to me, it's really truthfully the difference in 
the the ability of Ossoff to run his campaign compared to both Lieberman and Warnock and the assortment of never heard of Democrats also running. Well, I th- I think it's it's interesting because David Perdue has to accomplish two things. Um, we'll come back to Warnock here in a second, but David Perdue has to fire up the Republican base to turn out for him. And if that was the bulk of the electorate that he needed, you would likely see him acting in a very similar way to Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler. But to get over 50% plus one, David Perdue also needs to bring into his electorate the voters who have soured on President Trump and soured on Republicans and who are open to uh, voting for Democrats. And so he has to tell his base that John Ossoff is a terrorist. And I presume that he's doing this more quietly. And I, you, you should say, Luke, whether these mailers came directly from his campaign or from outside groups, but largely in the the umbrella that is David Perdue's campaign and outside groups that are supporting David Perdue, they have to send one message to the base, which will get them to the polls, which is this message that you described, Luke, in the mailers. And then he has to get on TV and tell a broader swath of voters that he's a bipartisan problem solver who's going to protect people with pre-existing conditions, whether or not his proposal to do that is bullshit or not. Um, He has to make that case to a different group of voters. Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins aren't worried about that second part of the equation for them because they're going to roll the dice in a runoff. And so I think that's sort of what illustrates the difference there. Um, I think I think the question, though, for, for Republicans is, particularly for David Perdue, I think this is a question that lingers for Governor Kemp in 2022. Can you campaign with two different faces like that? Can you fire up a base with this red meat, every Democrat is a terrorist message. And then at the same time, go to moderate voters and say, you know, I'm going to like fund your kids' schools and protect your health care and, and do all the things that you care about. Um, you know, can can they actually do that sort of two-step campaign? You know, in the last decade, they haven't really had to do that. Well, I, hold on. At least not to the extent they do now. Yeah, I, I would push back a little bit just by like pointing out the fact that that was basically Brian Kemp's campaign, right? Like Brian Kemp in the primary had an ad where he's like, this is my pickup truck where I will personally deport undocumented citizens. So he had not frame, he had not used those words. Uh, but he basically said that in a uh, much less appropriate way. And then like, as soon as he won the primary, he's like, I love teachers. I'm going to give them a raise. And he screamed that as loud as he could over and over. And then he became governor after, uh, you know, being the Secretary of State while the election was going on. Well, and he, so, he barely won, and he charged the Democrats with uh, hacking the voter registration system on the eve of the election. So, I mean, like, for, so, but like, so, like, just be clear though. Like, I agree with you that 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 is like in your negative column. But like, from being in Georgia on the ground listening to him day after day, like ninety percent of what he said would be in the like more reasonable version of David Perdue that's running this year compared to twenty fourteen and compared to Doug Collins and Loeffler. Like, yes, like that was. Still there brian kemp didn't stop being brian kemp but most of the time he was on message of something that like people in the suburbs would be like yeah that seems reasonable um so like i i firmly suspect and again it really depends on who's running against him i mean it's 
let's be honest, it's probably going to be Stacey Abrams. Uh, I don't know <laughs> yeah. who in their right mind. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying Stacey Abrams is God gifts to mankind, and like no one could be a better candidate than her. But like, I don't know who that human being would be, <laughs> and like how they Matt would get in Georgia and how they would build up a campaign against her and be successful. So like, let's be honest, it's probably going to be Kent versus Abrams again. Like, I don't know what new attack he's going to use because they use so many against her and so much of it was just like, oh, she's going to raise taxes and, you know, Georgia's doing pretty good being friendly to business. Why don't we just keep doing what we're doing? And I'm Brian Kemp instead of Nathan Deal and I love teachers. Like that was, <laughs> that was basically his campaign. And like, I really don't see like, how he's gonna how how he would deviate from that i'm probably underestimating them but that kind of seems like the obvious model that you know he's just gonna say like he's gonna add she wants to defund the police she supports president biden if biden wins and whatever like crazy thing is happening in dc like he will just say she supports that like i like the playbook for him is a lot easier i think so let's close here with with reverend warnock and i want to play his reaction to the passing of, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and his message to his supporters about what needs to happen next. Hey, everybody, this is Raphael Warnock, candidate for the United States Senate here in Georgia. I'm in my hometown of Savannah, Georgia, but I wanted to pause and remember Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're grateful for her life of extraordinary public service. She embodied the American creed of equal protection under the law. And she made sure that it extended to women, uh, to workers, and to those who live on the margins. As we consider her legacy, it's important that we not rush through this moment in trying to appoint a new member of the bench. Uh, we are a few days away from an election. That election should happen. The voices of the people that she stood up for time and time again ought to be heard uh, before there is a vote on the next Supreme Court justice. Uh, it's important uh, that we stand up in this moment, and it's extremely important that we all turn out to vote. This is why the Senate is so important. It's why I'm deeply honored to be running, to be the next United States Senator from the state of Georgia. So, Luke, he has taken the same position as a lot of other Democrats here, but Warnock and the position that he's in is unique in that given that this is a special election that could end on election day, the general assumption is that this will go to a runoff, part particularly because there's you know dozens of candidates in the race. A Reverend Raphael Warnock, who wins 50% plus one, though, could be seated in the U.S. Senate before the beginning of the next Congress in January, and his vote could potentially matter if Republicans were to try to get a nominee through the Senate in lame duck. First question is, do you think that that's like a realistic possibility that that chain of events where his vote would matter? And do you think that that raises the pressure on Democrats to rally behind Warnock as the Democratic nominee, quote unquote, nominee in this seat? Well, I mean, if every other Democrat running drops out and endorses him, then sure. Uh, and as far as like the Democratic Party like rallying around him, I mean, Stacey Abrams has endorsed him. Nakima Williams, the chair of the party, to my knowledge, has endorsed him. I am unaware of any Democrat that of note in endorsing 
either of the you know any of the others if you have please come on our program and tell us why i would love to know why um so yeah like i i i just i don't know what else can be done i think really what this highlights to me is that like i've seen reverend Raphael warnock speak several times in person the man could burn down a bar and barn like when, when i hear like people talk about barn burner speeches like he gives one basically every time and i think this is just a highlighting of how bad COVID has been for his campaign because like as great of a speaker as he was like that was a terrible terrible video <laughs> at least from the, just the audio of it like that was like listening to paint dry and <laughs> you know I don't know what sound it makes but it's not very interesting whereas just like if he had the opportunity to be like going you know to Macon and being on stage and giving like the same words but just being able to do it with a crowd like it would have been a lot better and i think just the awkwardness of like talking to the nothingness and the void is something that a pastor is probably uh not not good at he's he's more of listening he's he's more better at listening to the void and seeking inspiration from it and hearing the void rather than talking to it so um i think i think yeah that's just another loss to me um well and i guess that gets at your what you noted earlier about the impact of COVID on this race because you could envision him in a in a gym full of people making this speech and talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy for fighting for equality and how a reverend from Dr. King's former church is the natural heir to a person joining that fight. But you don't get that because you don't get a gym full of people and you don't you don't get crowds. You don't. You don't get that in this well, this moment of campaign. I, I do want to point out. Tell that to the Republicans running in Georgia because they are doing those things. They they don't care. I mean, every day in the hive full of scum and villainy that is Facebook, uh, I, I will you know be browsing and see a picture of a yet another Republican event where there are a bunch of people not socially distanced inside, not wearing masks, with Republican speakers in in the state. So they're they're still doing it. But yeah, since Democrats are not doing it, we are missing out on that. Well, the final thought then, because the stakes are so high. I mean. I generally think the series of events that allows Warnock's vote to be the one that stops a Trump nominee and lame duck is is a little bit of a long shot. I think it's if Republicans are going to push this thing through, they're going to do it before the election and, and they're not going to think twice about it. Um, but the stakes are high for a President Biden to have control of the Senate and, and Warnock is central to that. It, the stakes are high for a Democratic campaign proving that it can win a statewide race in this state. How does Reverend Warnock's campaign solve their twin problems of the Democrats that are still in this primary and getting enough attention on Reverend Warnock and his campaign that he can be a factor in this race and that this ultimately doesn't end up as a, a two Republican runoff in, in January? If I had the answer to that, Kyle, I would be baking a lot more money um, <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think they're trying it with the ads they're running. They're trying it because like, I, I want to be clear. I was critical of him doing that video, but like he should do that video. Like it's a good idea to do videos responding to things that are happening and trying to be accessible and trying to have your voice heard. So I don't want to like say don't do that because uh, that, that's definitely not what I'm saying. But I think people need to just like figure out what works for their campaigns and their candidates. So like, you know, just to do quick counterexamples, like Joe Biden 
is really good at those fake president speeches. <laughs> like, you know, the one he did for his convention and just like every speech I've seen of him since the Democratic convention, where he's basically just still got a podium with flags behind him, have been like really good for him because those are supernatural and he's really just like comfortable doing that. Whereas like John Ossoff is like, sitting on his porch talking to people in a lot of his ads and like those look really good so like warnock needs to find what he can do unfortunately uh he can't just get behind his pulpit what he's used to doing and like preach a sermon to us but you know like he like he's got to find it like he's got to find something he can do that he's comfortable with doing and find the venue and the form of communication he's good at in the same way that Trump is good at Twitter and like Biden is good at giving speeches like a president usually does. Like Warnock has to have a thing that he's good at and he just has to find it and start doing it. The one thing, this could be bad advice. The one thing that seems to be spurring interest on the Republican side is this brutal, brutal fighting between Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler they are more evenly matched opponents, whereas Warnock is is at least by Democrats being treated as what should be the Democratic nominee. Would he gain anything by fighting more with the fellow Democrats in that race to try to draw some attention? I don't think so, because like besides Ed Tarver, I can't name any other ones who are running. I know they're there. I know they're doing things. I know they think they're running, but they're not. Um, in, in any you real can find way. our interview We're, with Rich, Richard Dean Winfield in your podcast feeds. He is running long shot Democrat, but I yeah. talked to him. And I mean, there's, there's like eight other of these, you know, folks doing this and um, they're going to gain less than, you know, two digits. I, I will, applaud any one of them that gets above five percent um not not in a real sense since they actually will be harming democracy and the democratic party by running long shot bids in a jungle primary but i i digress um like no so like there is no benefit for Raphael warnock to like beat up these people because no one knows who they are and so all he would do is elevate them there's an argument for him to go after lieberman a little bit more and i think that felt necessary to me maybe two months ago but now warnock has been steadily pulling ahead of him and i i mean really what what i think the tragedy of this is is that Raphael warnock has been wanting to run for office for a long time he flirted with it in 2016 he didn't really flirt with it in 18 but he like he should have known that like this is the year i'm gonna do it and like there is a lot of warning and he announced pretty late i think in this jungle primary cycle and like he's he's just being punished for not running earlier and not starting up earlier um, because it just takes time. It takes time to get known around the state. It takes time for people to hear about you. And I think if he had more time, this would be less of an issue. But like, it, you know, just to like hit on what you said earlier, where there's this poll where he's at 21 percent. That is a full 30% away from winging this thing without a runoff, right? And so, like, it's a heck of Collins, which is good, because that's what you need to get to a runoff. But if, like, to wing entirely, it would take a lot of work. So, like, I don't see him doing that. I don't see anyone doing that between now and November, barring, you know, 
Warnock getting endorsed by every other Democrat and them actively campaigning for him, which I will go ahead and tell you will not happen because, you know, one of these people, if they had money for a poll, which they probably don't, they would see themselves going from 3% to 4 and be like, I have momentum, I'm going to win because the mind of a politician is a dangerous thing. Um, So, like, it's just not going to happen. So it's really, I think this race is going to be very, very determinative upon what the world looks like on November 4th. Um, because uh, all bets are off. I think if, if, if it is a Democrat v Republican race, uh, it will be very unpredictable. And I think it's Warnock's job to just keep doing what he's doing and trying to erode support from Lieberman without boosting him in any way and just stay in the number two spot. Like that's, it's not an exciting job, but that's that's what I think his job is here. Or, I mean, he could still get to the number one spot. I mean, if Lieberman completely erodes, which, I mean, due to some of the negative stories he's experienced and the general confusion I and many Democrats feel towards him running in this race. Um, also, someone who is on this pod, from my recollection. <laughs> so, uh, you know, true, yeah, like, if, if Warnock keeps degrading, like, I could see him getting to 35 or 40 pretty easily. Um, it's just a question of, is that going to happen or not? And I, I don't know at the t- moment. But I mean, it's relatively meaningless if he gets, even if he finishes in first, if it's below 50%, right? I, I would disagree with that. I don't think it is entirely meaningless because I think a huge reason why John Ossoff is doing significantly better than all these other people is, as I mentioned being shocked about before, is the fact that he did not need a runoff, that he had a very, very strong primary performance and that he really i mean the level of confidence i gained from his campaign after that win was significant as someone who is even i was watching this very closely and i was surprised by that and got got a lot of confidence in his operation and that's only grown since then so if warnock is able to like pull together 40 percent or something where he's like this down right now I think that would get a lot more notice than if in a couple months, you know, Loeffler's at like 26 and he's at 23 and, you know, Collins is at 22. And so he just barely ekes it into the runoff. Like that's a different world, I think, um, because that just gives you a reading on like what kind of talent is around Warnock um, and, and what, you know, he's able to to put together. All right. Well, I think that is enough for today. So we're going to leave that discussion there. You'll hear more from us and in a broader a group of panelists on the legal legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, prayers and, and thoughts to her family as they uh, deal with her passing. Um, and we'll be keeping an eye on these Senate races. And when you get our Sunday pod next week, we're going to go a little bit more into the mechanics of campaigning and talk about all those mailers you've been getting, Luke. Yeah, pictures in a uh, audio format. It's going to work great. It's going to be great. All righty, y'all. We're going to leave it there. You'll hear from the regular podcast crew again later this week. Also check out that interview I did with Richard Dean Winfield. You can find that in the feed. Um, we got lots of Peach Pod coming your way. November will be here before we know it. We'll talk to you all soon, guys. Bye. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.